what I figured out was my life's purpose was to lead my family out of darkness and uplift my community. Hmm. Welcome home. This is your girl Valerie, a.k.a. Priestess Super Vixen, a conversationalist. You're in my room. Enchanting Asheville. In this show, you hear the voices of people of color and those who love them. In Asheville, North Carolina, and beyond. 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 Welcome home, Ashevillians and curious travelers. This is your girl, Valerie, a.k.a. Priest Super Vixen. And you are listening to Enchanting Asheville, where you hear the voices of people of color and those who love them. Our guest on today's episode is Rob Thomas of Racial Justice Coalition. But first, it's time for the On the Ground Update, where you get the latest on what's happening in Asheville with the Black Lives Matter movement and equity initiatives. Here's Savannah Gibson, our witchy field correspondent and local activist in Asheville. Savannah! Thanks, Val. This On the Ground update is coming to you from the afternoon of August 24th. On August 20th, Grant Paul Dalton, a local resident struggling with mental illness, was shot and tasered by AVLPD. The Asheville Police Department was called in by Asheville ABC, Asheville Alcoholic Beverage Commission, to assist with the traffic stop. Grant, who was suicidal, barricaded himself on a city bus. He was alone on the bus at the time and began self-injuring. In response to the self-injury, Asheville police officers shot and tasered him. AVLPD reported he attacked him with a knife. Bystanders at the scene did not see Grant charging at the officers. He is currently in critical condition at Mission Hospital. Additionally, on July 25, 2020, Jacob Bix was found unconscious in his cell at Buncombe County Detention Center presumably of overdose. He was not treated in time and died two days later at Mission Hospital. The SBI plans to investigate his death. A few days earlier, on July 18th, Hannah Guffey was found unresponsive in her cell as well. She too needed medical attention, but did not receive it, and later that evening died at Mission Hospital. There has currently been no investigation into Ms. Guffey's death. In other news, Just Economics is bringing back its Voices for Economic Justice program. Registration is open, and the workshops will be held on Wednesday evenings beginning on September 16th. For more information and to register, please contact Just Economics WNC on Facebook or on their webpage. Additionally, the Vance Monument Task Force began meeting last Thursday. They will continue to meet weekly for the next three months to decide what will happen with the Vance Monument. That's all I got for you, Val. Back to you. Thanks, Savannah. The guest on today's episode is a brown-skinned, long-locked, wise, brown-eyed man with a visionary mind. 
a community leader that's extending his scope nationwide. We're talking strategic change of laws, policies, and upholding basic human rights through Racial Justice Coalition. That's our Rob Thomas. He's here in the house. Welcome, Rob Thomas. Thank you for having me, Valerie. Now, Rob, the first time I seen you recently was at a vigil. I did not know your story. Like, I've known you, like, we've been in and out of different circles, you know, before then. But I had no idea. When you spoke that night, it was amazing. It, it took me days to reflect and to process all the nuances of your story. And it just was, I felt both happy about your resilience and your strength, but I also felt like, whoa, you, you overcame a lot of things from the start in your life. So I'm just curious. Now, I, before Savannah told me about you, I didn't make the connection that you were the same person that I had that I had actually spoken to on the stage, and I was like, that name sounds familiar to me. It was just, it it, it eluded who you were. But when she told me that you were the man to speak to speak to to holler at about racial equity, and then when I was able to reach out to you through email, and you was like, yeah, Valerie, you, you know me. <laughs> I'm like. Wow, okay, this world is smaller than you think. Now, with your story being very humbling of a beginning, and you talk about your parents, and obviously, at least the way I take it, due to a feeling of despondency, that they were serious drug users. They use it to medicate through their pains in life. What could you say about your parents that's in your DNA that made you the man that you are? Hmm. My parents were extremely intelligent individuals. That is why even though throughout their drug use, they were still amazing parents Mm. Um, to whereas they did not abuse me and they also instilled integrity, discipline, dedication, and motivation in me all while dealing with drug addictions to whereas, you know, I never went hungry at night, mm. um, but we just didn't have a whole lot of the other uh, extra things and accessories that other households may have, such as, you know, a lot of toys and, and things of that nature. You know, they always instilled in me uh, to, to have good grades, so I was an A honor roll student. Mm. And um, before their drug addictions took them down, they were very productive members of society, mm. whereas my father uh, worked at a... Um, he worked at a factory, and he got paid a pretty pretty good uh, salary. Uh, back then, I, w- I want to say his position was, um, hmm, I don't necessarily remember what his position was inside the factory, but I know that he dealt with uh, with dye and cast making inside mm. of factories, and um, he, he was over a machine operator. Like, his position was above that. My mother was, uh, she had two jobs. She worked at Busman before they had closed down and she had another job on the side to mm-hmm. whereas 
they only had a few years left before the mortgage on our house would have been paid off Whoa. before their drug addiction took them down. So they was they were wonderful people, and I and I currently have great relationships with them because I understand what yes. their drug addiction took them through, and I don't blame them at all for it. That is powerful. So you recognize that they gave you serious skills on how to deal with life, you yeah. know, to the best of their ability, and that they were very productive. Yes, very much so. Like I said, wow. um, even as even as drug addicts, they were still better than most parents that were not on drugs. <laughs> okay, and though. I, I had plenty of examples of what bad parenting is like. And, you wow. know, I look back on my childhood and I, I have so many lessons that they taught me and instilled within me while battling with an, with an extreme addiction mm. that was uh, – tearing people's lives down now right. we lost a lot of things as far as materialistic things but you know they they never lost their uh a lot of their morality to whereas wow. they did not abuse me or my brother and and you know that were plenty that was still plenty of love within our household uh you know minus the drug addiction mm. thank you for that thanks for acknowledging the power and the strength that your parents gave you that's part of the legacy that they left for you and that's a very strong part of you that other people are seeing especially today so you know thank you for sticking on in there and making it through and being a great example that you are in charge of your life regardless of what happens and what you experience and your parents influences you still are the person that has control over your life now I'm curious when was that aha moment that you realized you were on a hamster wheel dealing with life and that you needed to get off? Probably uh, in solitary confinement in prison when, while I was studying uh, comedic meditation and dealing with breathing cycles. And so it allowed me to go within myself and really see what it was about me uh, you know, not my physical body, but about me, the individual that controls this vessel that I needed to work and remold and reshape in order to achieve what it is that I wanted to achieve out of life, no matter what was against me. I spent years before that, uh, before this aha moment, angry at the world. And then I learned my history. And then that anger turned into anger towards white people. Mm. And then, you know, after reading numerous self-help books and actually learning what reality is and how everything is literally the same uh, thing. Like, you know, and I, I kind of want to break this down just a little bit. Please do. To whereas if you look at this wooden table that sits before us, yes. it truly is no different than the skin on my arm. Mm. It is made up of atoms, which is made up of electrons, neutrons, and protons, mm -hmm. and everything in essence is energy. Yes. And it has been scientifically proven that atoms communicate to each other. Mm. Um, so... Learning the oneness of life and realizing how everything is one, you know, everything is experiencing reality in different modes, but mm. at the end of the day, we all are of one, yes. and centering myself in that and moving forward was probably my aha moment. That is when I went after seeking other skills that I needed to add to myself, yes. such as business planning, um, you know, horticulture on a... Uh, a deep level of horticulture, you know, a scientific level, like understanding the pH and, uh, 
you know, the nitrous, phosphorus, and potassium ratio for different specific plants, the cycling, mm. you know, how to how to induce cloning and just so much more. Mm. And, you know, other skills, uh, how to run a nonprofit, the bylaws, um, and several other things. Like, you know, I read the CDL manual while I was in there, and I made mm. up my mind I was going to get my commercial driver's license upon my release. Mm. Um, six months after my release, I had achieved that goal. Hmm. While working a full time job, and then I was started getting paid two and a half times as much what I was making at my my uh, job with public housing, wow. and you know since I've been released, it's just been a, a steady climb upward for me. Wow! <laughs> uh, all I can say is is hot <laughs> listening to a man break down where he was what the process was for him to see the correlation of life in such a divine matter knowing that everything around you is life and is vibrating they all vibrate at a, just a different vibration therefore this what you get the density from baby mm. he said, i'm so proud of you <laughs> I am so proud of you. Okay, so what was it? What was that inspiration that was like when you realized that you, and, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but you are ordained to make an impact on society for yourself and other people in the community. What was it that finally said to you, this is my job to do. That was later on, uh, I would say, while incarcerated. And I was around my elders that were incarcerated that were guiding me through these phases and giving me mm. uh, the information uh, that that I was nurturing myself upon. And, uh, you know, so I attracted all types of information to myself. And, you know, I had a... a a dream that kind of showed me some things about myself and my life and my family history and I remember realizing my life's purpose so my life's purpose you know which I don't too often uh, communicate to individuals what I figured out was my life's purpose was to lead my family out of darkness and uplift my community and that is what I am portraying today and you know, and it's not about me to where everything works together. So I humbly say that I am not doing this alone. Well, I mm. just feel as if I may be in slight harmony with the universe. Mm. And uh, I am just working together with the universe and everyone that is around me that we're all on the same path. So it's not about me, and which is why I always try to negate the credit for the works that I'm doing. Because it's like so many things that are working together, so many people that are working together, that how could I consciously take credit and Absolutely. my ego claim anything that may happen for because of some of the actions that I produced in combination with other act, with other people's actions and the universe as a whole. Absolutely. Because you know? now, let me break a little bit, a little bit of hair, spiritual science on you folks, right? So everyone that you are in contact with, even, even the gas station attendant, you all made an agreement to be in this reality together to play a role, even if they're just passing you a pack of cigarettes. 
everything is a tapestry woven together and we all agreed to be here and play these roles out. In the astral plane, in the other world, there is no big, shall I say, um, emotional experience of, oh, this is going to happen. And this, it's like it's all part of a divine plan, a divine dance that we all agreed and said, hey, remember when you see me, I'm going to remind you of this. And it's going to catapult you to make certain choices. Oh, just want you to know that we're going to change this on earth, but we're going to do it this way or this, this your desire to do so. And your spirit makes these agreements and we all make these agreements and we're here. So now we're talking also difference in timelines. Now I'm probably just going way over folks' heads. We talk about timelines. Timelines are just as vast as you have minds of people to create. So therefore, we can decide which type of timeline by our actions that we're going to live. Are we going to live in a timeline where we're all going to just destroy each other and the earth? Are we going to be in the timeline where we're going to uplift the people that have been downtrodden by society and then move into that timeline where those people become in power who are naturally balanced in spirit to help keep everything back into its balance. <laughs> I'm in that timeline where I'm worshipped for being a divine being. The queen, the goddess, the priestess I'm in. Okay, I just took y'all way out there. But I just wanted just to drop this in there that we are a nation of people and we have this legacy called We the People to change this world. It's never changed. I don't care who's in office. We the people are the ones that make the change. And when people of color gets tired and we activate that melanin and we start making things move by our actions, we heal everybody else in the process. So indeed, Black Lives Matter makes all lives matter just that much more sweeter just want to throw that out there for you, okay? Just, just had to do that. As I watch and listen to a panel that you were on with the Blue Ridge Public Radio featuring Sheriff Miller, Rondell Lance, and many others, including what's the name of that beautiful young black girl that was on there? Zaria Abdul-Karim. Bruh. That little young lady with that cute little frame had an energy like Biggie Smalls, okay? She was no, no joke. I'm going to keep an eye on that one. That one's going to do some big things. Yeah, she's amazing. She is. She rocked. Oh, my gosh. Who was Rondell Lance? What was his position? I kind of came in. I didn't get it. Who, who was he? <laughs> Rondell Lance, um, from my understanding, is the president of the uh, Fraternal Order of Police, which... Uh, you know, they back and support police. He's also a 30-year veteran uh, of APD um, and retired. Rondell Lance also most recently uh, has, you know, from what I've seen on video, was assaulting uh, protesters where I've seen him throw one woman. He, he yelled profanities at many individuals that were participating in the protest, 
and police, uh, when whenever protesters would try to approach him to remove him, law enforcement officials protected him. Interesting. Now I now I'm a human, so I get that in some sense that's the boss man. Okay, so they felt obligated to want to protect him, but then again, have we forgotten? What the purpose of this is supposed to be about? A harm none unless you absolutely have to. Unless there's a a, a a gun, you know, that's like, hey, you know, you know your life is threatened. Someone protesting? And we're getting physical with people protesting? So it's like the message is that we're not supposed to protest if we don't like what we're supposed to be doing. I must be very emotional today. I am. And I I just want that to be real. This stuff's got to change. And if he's been in this field for 30-something years, just in his conversations, he kept overriding and dominating the conversations. It took great discipline for him to calm down, to listen to other people speak. And even when he was prompted to give up the mic, you know, so that we could move on, he had a hard form of discipline. So I'm interested if this is what we're doing in our enforcement agencies. I mean, no wonder why we're having such issues. We need everyone to be on board. We gotta be a greater example. Well, it seems to me that in his in his speech, and one of the questions that was asked of him, he emphasized the fear that the people, like society as a community, wasn't very concerned about the safety of police. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um... I think his underlying issues is he does not want law enforcement to lose power and authority over individuals. That's uh. that's what the main issue is with him. And he is exemplary of what uh, law enforcement, the culture of policing, turns the individual into. To whereas this is the same man that stated to me once I asked him, you know, I said, you were in law enforcement for thir- over 30 years. So... And you claim to be a quote-unquote good cop. So you are telling me, one, that you never took part in any negative activities conducted by law enforcement. And two, that you also always told on law enforcement officers that you've seen participate in these activities. And this same man stated to me that, yes, that that was what he did and that he had told that he had... uh, you know, told on several of his co-workers when they were in the room. And then to watch this man and act actively at a protest, like throw in, throw a woman and yell profanities at her and physically assault other people, mm. not even as a law enforcement officer anymore. He is retired, oh, oh, a retired oh, law oh, enforcement my. officer. So like you, you just visibly told on yourself and just told the truth. Like there is no way, sir, that you would just have one day when you're just out here today, not no longer an officer, and you are committing uh, civilian brutality. 
So you telling me that you didn't do that for the years, decades that you were an active law enforcement agent? Mm-hmm. So, like to me, I don't, I don't even, I don't even give uh, the words he says out of his mouth the justice of mm-hmm. really, uh, you know, pondering upon it because mm-hmm. he is a front and. He is representative of the mindset of a lot of individuals that work within law enforcement. Yep. Yep. And if the head is not going to be an outstanding example of the others beneath them, I'm talking hierarchy dealing with business, how are we going to expect anything more from local police? How are we going to expect any more? But that's changing. That is changing. And see, these days, there's not one person. See, in most civil rights movements, there's always one individual that's like the whole, that held all the power of what happens. This time, it ain't even like that. And, and it's not even one ethnic group this time. It's all the people of color. And there are non-melanated alliances People who are Caucasian that are like, yo, this crap does have to stop. We recognize this stuff is unbalanced, unfair, and we stand by you, people of color. We do recognize this is some crap. and We didn't want to believe it, but now it's all in our faces. So really, thanks for telling on yourselves. Thanks for bringing the awareness of why we want to defund the police. Because if we just allow the same old, same old and say, let's just reform, you're not going to reform nothing. The integrity, you, it's obvious there, there is very little integrity in the whole system of our enforcement. And I will speak on the behalf. Oh, yeah. I'm going to speak on the behalf of those who are genuine law enforcement officers those who really got in the field to help people, who really do help the people, I'm really sorry that they're going to have to feel this blunt of change in the system because of their milieu of folks they're dealing with. And I'm sorry for those ones that are going to suffer because of the actions of their peers. But many of you saw your peers do some effed up stuff and you didn't stop it. And you probably also felt your hands were tied. Look at who's head of it all. (laughs) You didn't feel like you stood a chance. Anywho. Thanks for the clarity about that. I didn't know that much about Rondell. And I was very, very proud of Sheriff Miller, and he was very eloquent and spoke his his mind, uh, but I couldn't help but also feel for him in a sense that, you know, this is his career as well, and so he's got, in my mind, not saying, I'm not speaking for Mr. Miller, but I'm just speaking as an outsider. I could am- only imagine his uncomfortable position of being a sheriff and having these issues happening on his watch. And I'm sure that he's doing his best 
to eliminate some of these negative experiences. And I'm sure he's also trying to assist in the process of others getting the help that they need as far as psychologically, as far as police officers who need that type of help. And I'm sure he's doing the best that he can. But I have to admit, I didn't feel comfortable. I wouldn't have felt comfortable if I was Sheriff Miller at that time. Because he knows the inside and out. Uh, he knows the people in the community. And he's in law enforcement. And I'm sure he has to deal with a whole lot of stuff that he probably won't be able to even express. <sighs> So, right now, with the Racial Justice Coalition, you're honoring a whole, a whole collective of other agencies and elders who are also working with you. As you said earlier, you're not taking the credit for this on your own because you're working with a lot of others. Some of us after they talked about reparations being done, we saw someone on Facebook put out there, hey, there's no um, concrete plans for reparations, okay? And most of us were like, oh yeah, okay, it's okay, but we gotta at least get in the door first. Okay, let's, let's get in the door first. And you spoke to Aisha Adams on her show. Is it Asheville? Say it. You remember the name of her show? Yes, the Asheville View. The Asheville View. She asked you a powerful question about that, and was like, "So where are we now with reparations?" And you responded in such a way that it was amazing. So I'm giving you this opportunity again, so that people can hear it from you. What is your take on the fact that there weren't any concrete moves yet as to how reparations will move forward? And so tell us, what is your input on that? Um, the concrete move that is outlined within the resolution is that a commission will be created. Thank now, you. as far as a specific plan, that to me is the beauty of the document. Because if you mm -hmm. outlay a specific plan that gives the city boxes to check off and be able to say, look, we've done this, this, and this, we've done reparations. To whereas they outlined the harms and the solutions to, uh, to those harms which should be created by community members. And what needs to happen now is that community is brought into the table to uh, decide best how to heal these harms and create their own plans towards healing them and not be represented by a nonprofit, by uh, a false leader, or by all of the other vessels that have claimed to be the voice of all the black people, where there is no such mm. thing. We are not a monolith, I'm sure. Mm. People have seen that everywhere. Whereas in, it's, this is about uplifting the community and empowering the community. This is bring. This looks like bringing the community into the table, mm -hmm. so that the middleman is cut out. Whether it's mm -hmm. a nonprofit, whether it's a, a 
a specific individual mm-hmm. and they can pick their own representatives and have their plans uh, implemented of their own will. Um, my role throughout this whole thing, uh, once they get brought into the table that is currently being built and they have the decision making power, because that's what this is about. This is about centering community and giving them decision making power and not having the same stakeholders that that the city and the county always chooses to represent us. But but mm-hmm. having having a uh, organic team of individuals brought into the table. And then, like I said, me on the outside um, advocating for the things that they come up with that they need. Because in the past, another issue is, you know, community has presented several plans to the city that have been uh, overlooked and not implemented. But the difference between now and then is we have a platform. We have Mm. national spotlight and Mm. attention. And, you know, I plan on assisting by the things they ask for. Uh, You know, I plan on uplifting it and supporting it. And getting on different platforms and 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 making sure that the spotlight is is continuously shown on this, mm. so that the things that they say in the past, like we don't have the capacity or we're going to do this and nothing ever happens, so we don't allow that to happen again. Um, the community has to organize and collectively come together and play their role because their role is way more important than my role. Mm. And thank you for saying that again. That's that we are the people. <laughs> Just in case you didn't get that. <laughs> I am very appreciative of your being here. I am more, even even more, every time I get around you and listen to you talk, I get a deeper appreciation for the person that you are. And I'm grateful for the people that you're working with because I understand that I am being very uh, nostalgic about you as an individual, but I know that you are speaking with and of many others. Yes. You know? So thank you for what you do. You're a busy man. You're hard to keep up with. But I do want you to know that I appreciate the work that you do as an individual because it all starts with yourself. If you don't do the work inside you, what about the work on the outside? We got to start working inside of ourselves. And bruh, I'm proud of you. Thank you for being here. Now, just go ahead and make sure everybody is clear. If they want to reach out to make donations to the racial work that you're doing, where can they direct their funds to? Um, We have a button on our website. It's at rjcavl.org. Again, the website's name is rjcavl.org, and it has a Donate Today button. Um, on there and you click there and Beloved currently collects all of our donations because we are not incorporated um, as of yet to where is the mission that you know I continuously implement within this organization is that we do not conform to white supremacy culture Mm. so I do not have a board of directors I do not have Mm. the normal structure that hinders so many other nonprofits and so many other leaders from being who they are and implementing what they see the need for implementing. Um, so we most likely will be incorporating here very soon in the form of a worker-directed nonprofit hmm. so that always the people of color up front will always guide and direct it. Um, and we do have two co-chairs, but they're all people of color. You have Carmen Ramos Kennedy, 
who uh, was the last uh, president of the local chapter of the NAACP. Mm. And you have Gary Leonard, who does a lot of documentaries around racial equity work around uh, the nation with working films. And he is also a person of color. All right, then. And so is there any other social media contact that you want to let us all know that's available in order to reach you or to reach the organization? Yes, we have the Racial Justice Coalition Asheville Facebook page, and we also have a Facebook group by the name of Response to COVID-19 for Those in Custody, which centers the voices of those who are incarcerated. And, uh, Mm. you know, you have several different uh, things that process within this group, whether it's call to action, information around the current uh, prison environment, uh, changes within policies, changes within laws that affect individuals getting out. Mm-hmm. It's just a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a nice uh, platform to go and find information pertaining to the justice system in general. Wow. Thank you so much, Rob Thomas, for being here with us. <laughs> Again, you are a hard man to keep up with. Thank you so much for coming out, giving us this information, sharing your wisdom, sharing your faith in us as a people and the work that we all must do in healing ourselves from the inside. Do your dang work, people. And then we also come out together to make changes in society. It's been a pleasure, Rob Thomas. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Now for just a few thoughts. According to Time Magazine, the article, How the U.S. Got Its Police Force, was updated May 18th of 2017 by Olivia B. Waxman. Gary Potter, a crime historian at Eastern Kentucky University, explains the policing in colonial America. He says it was informal, based on for-profit and privately owned system of part-timers. Some towns did what was called night watch, involving volunteers to look out for fellow citizens that were engaging in drinking and prostitution. This system wasn't effective because the volunteers would fall asleep from drinking on duty. So soon, it was used as a form of punishment to work as a night watcher. If you were rich enough, you paid someone, someone else to do that work for you, which usually ended up being criminals or community thugs. The first publicly funded organized police with full-time workers were in Boston of 1838. Merchants came up with a way to convince the citizens to uphold the police for the common good so that it saved them the money of their protection of their financial interest. In the South, the economic driving force of creating a police institution was not centered on the protection of the citizens or of shipping interest, but in the preservation of the slavery system. Their job was to slave patrol, chase down runaways, 
and prevent slavery revolts, according to Gary Potter. Oh yeah, there were slavery revolts. It was not circulated in the news during that time, and it was kept very hush-hush, but there were many revolts. That didn't make it into our history books, but I shall continue. Hmm. According to Gary Potter, the first patrol was created in 1704. During the Civil War, the military was primarily the enforcers, but local sheriffs functioned like slave patrollers of the past, trying to keep segregation, and they operated to participate in disenfranchisement of freed slaves. The police force and local businessmen in the late 19th century had also a new concept about citizenship images when new waves of immigrants came along. Control over labor unions and other nuances like drinking changed police and actions in the area. Do your research, people. So in my opinion, policing depends on the area, the influences of your most important businessmen, landowners, and politicians. What the police does in the community to its citizens is greatly influenced by those in power, and therefore you get to see how our leaders in our community feel about the citizens through the actions of the police force. Therefore, the attacks on businesses that were not done by peaceful protesters of the Black Lives Matter movement was strategic. And the strategy of that was to sway the feelings of those in power against particular citizens. Now that's just my own uh, opinion. Thanks for listening. Now here's your weekly enchantment, where I offer healing words for my Ashevillians and curious travelers. My dear ones, of all cultures and all human nations, sit down and relax. In this quiet, sacred moment, feel the peace surrounding you. Feel the strength of Earth, Mother Earth under your body and your feet. As you inhale and exhale, you notice the rhythm of your breath. The rhythm of your heart starts to coincide with the heartbeat of the earth. All time stops and you are surrounded by the warmth of darkness as if cradled in your mother's womb. This heartbeat sounds like a slow beating of a drum. And as you open your mind's eye, you realize that you have been transported. You hear birds singing. You're in a creek with your feet in the water. Thanks, Oshun. Some of you have a comfy chair in the creek. 
while you let the waters flow over your toes. Some of you stand strong, feeling and hearing everything around you. Some of you stand strong, feeling and hearing everything around you. Some of you sit on the bank of the creek, feeling the cold, moist earth underneath your butt. The water flows from east to west of you at your perfect temperature. Some of you like the water icy cold, and that's what you feel. Some of you like it lukewarm, as you will feel that. As you watch yourself wiggle your toes in the water, which you can see right through, you see little fish pass across your feet. They're so cute. Your attention is drawn to the landscape past the cropping trees and your immediate surroundings. You decide to walk out of the creek and head in that direction. The sun shines over your grasslands just perfectly warm enough so that you feel the sun but perfect enough just so you don't get uncomfortable. All of a sudden you become more cognitive of who you are right now. For some reason you realize you are a big Fortune 500 business tycoon. You are overwhelmed with this feeling of confidence and accomplishment. You keep walking and notice a big boulder to your right coming up ahead. You decide to walk towards the boulder and sit. The stone is slightly warm to the touch. As you get comfortable, a holographic storyline appears before you. One of them is a guy that's head of your shipping department. His name is Tony Despondent and you can tell that he is having an argument with his wife. You listened intently to this awkward situation. They obviously don't see you, but you can hear the argument between them and hear their thoughts. She wanted out of the relationship because she felt like he was always struggling with the finances. Mr. Despondent went drinking again, and that infuriates his wife because he already doesn't make enough money to contribute to the finances, but it doesn't stop him from going out drinking. Now you ask yourself, why did you have to see this couple's struggle? You and your partner never argue over finances. If anything, you argue about vacation spots or whose relatives you will spend time with and when over the holidays. But you never have to argue about having enough money in the household. Then you remembered a pitch given by a young lady to your organization. She wanted to have a bulletin board in human resources that offers flyers for AA and NA meetings in the area. She asked for the organization to sponsor a chapter and support people in recovery. You remember feeling that you didn't want people to be talking about their drug and alcohol issues inside the company, so you turned it down. That same young lady then asked, would you be interested in donating a certain amount of proceeds from the company towards nonprofit organizations that assist people in the community for substance abuse and dual diagnosis? You remember 
thinking to yourself that you felt that people just need to learn how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps? And why should you invest in something that you nor anyone in your family would ever need? You get up from the stone and you start walking again. You notice a change in yourself. You look down and realize you are dressed like a police officer. This time there's a wooden bench at your right, so you decide to sit down. As you sit, a holographic image is shown before you. Mr. Despondent is at the bar, talking loudly and out of control of his emotions. His phone keeps lighting up and ringing and he keeps declining the calls. The bartender asks Despondent to leave because he is getting a little aggressive with the other patrons of the bar. Officers were called to the bar because Mr. Despondent would not stop requesting alcohol and he would not leave. Two officers came and spoke to Mr. Despondent. They asked him to leave the bar with them. Mr. Despondent gets triggered by the fact the officers were there asking him to leave. And instead of being civil and leaving, he tells them to kiss his butt. Now these officers been on the beat for several hours in and out of different situations all night long and they were exhausted. They did not have the patience nor did they feel like being patient with an alcoholic. At this time, the officer starts acting like bouncers and pulls him out of the bar. Mr. Despondent kept grabbing at chairs, tables, even other patrons while kicking and swinging as the officers tried to get him out of the bar. The patients of the officers left and they started beating Mr. Despondent. At this moment, you stand up from the bench. You didn't want to see anymore. It was clear to you the connection between the last storyline and this one and your responsibilities as a businessman to be helpful to the community. But again, is it your fault that some people cannot handle their liquor? You thought. Should it be your responsibility to help others who apparently aren't trying to help themselves? You think to yourself. You look down and the uniform was no longer on you, but you were no longer an adult either. You keep moving forward and you see another bench ahead. At this time, you are about eight or nine years of age as you sit down on this bench. Before, before you, there was an image of your parents arguing about your mother's drinking and your father's financial situation. Your heart skipped a beat because you remembered this argument very well. Dad was a hardworking man that came home every day after work. But most of the time, you and your brother were either at home by yourselves or the neighborhood babysitter was watching you. Your mom 
always smelled like alcohol, whether she woke up early in the morning or the last thing you smelled on her late at night. You remember hearing your mother say that she drinks because she never loved your father and he should just turn away and let her live her life. She felt trapped because she was with him because of financial stability and this was ordained by her parents for her to marry your father. This hurt your father so deeply that he left the house that evening after arguing with your mother. He went drinking that night and your father is a lightweight. As he leaves the bar, he doesn't notice a man walking in front of the vehicle and he hits that man, a despondent man, and kills him. You stood straight up and it snapped you back from being a nine-year-old child to a grown adult. You saw the cycle of life and that you woke up from thinking of people such as us and them. We don't always know how we affect each other, but each one of us are definitely connected to one another. You came back to your senses with your feet back in the creek. The cool water brings you back to the beginning of this vision. You start to hear the slow, distant drums as it gets louder and louder. The drums bring you back to where you were before you began this vision quest. There's a crack of lightning above. Thanks, Uncle Shango. (laughs) It's time to return. Dear loved ones, it's time to come back to your present time. Slowly you start to hear the sounds of the city around you. Birds chirping and neighbors going in and out of their vehicles, slamming the doors. You even see that you have a few messages on your phone. (laughs) Welcome back. Breathe deeply, my love. We recalibrated wisdom, strength, compassion, and love from our benevolent ancestors and the cosmos back into our hearts, minds, and actions. Just know they love you. I love you. Thanks again for joining me in my realm. Join us next week for a special episode. This time is about my experiences a few stories of racism that had a serious impact on my life. Those experiences have shaped what I do today. Speaking with you about racial equity and the changes in our community. Hey! 
We are looking for sponsors and benefactors for this show so that we can continue elevating the equity work being done in our community. If you know a business or someone who would like to financially support our show, please contact us at supervxn19 at gmail.com. You can follow me at Supervixen Conversationalist on Instagram and Facebook. If you're interested in hiring me directly for conversations or private enchantments, you can reach me for appointments at vxn19 at gmail.com. If you would like to make a donation, PayPal me, paypal.me forward slash S-U-P-E-R-V-X-N-1-9. Thanks for your support. You've heard my enchantment and received it well. Now you go forth and be a part of this loving community movement that is enchanting Asheville and beyond. Bye for now. Hey, witches, brooms up.